going to read for us today the scripture that David's going to be preaching out of, 1 John 3, verses 19 to 24. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Amen. Good morning. It's great to be with you. As Gina said, my name is David. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome everyone in this room and those of us who are joining online. Uh, it's a good day. It's a good day to be together. And uh, if you've been tracking with us over the last few months, we are in a teaching series in 1 John. It's a letter that's written by a man named John who spent three years of his life with Jesus when Jesus walked on earth. John was someone who, who knew Jesus personally. John was someone who looked upon Jesus with his very own eyes, heard Jesus laugh and speak and teach and have conversations with Jesus, heard him speak with his own ears. He touched Jesus. He walked and lived and spent three years of his life with Jesus. John was one of Jesus' closest Friends, he is someone who had as up close and personal a relationship and experience of Jesus that you could possibly have. This is John, the writer of this letter that we've been in. And years later, after this experience of, of life with Jesus, he's writing to some people who have shaky faith and need their faith to be strengthened. Life has happened. There's these, these people who oppose Jesus and all that he stands for, people that John calls antichrists in this letter. There's the, the pressures that are coming from all around them and, and, and relationship issues within the church. And John is writing all these years later as their pastor to come alongside them to restore the faith that has been rattled because of their situation on the ground and to help them find a soul at rest. That's why John is writing. He wants them to have a soul at rest and he wants them to have strong and confident faith. And he does that in this letter in a multitude of different ways, coming at it from different angles. But today John is going to zero in on the inner person and what we experience there. That's his main concern as we pick up and begin reading in verse 19 where John says this. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. So John's main concern in this passage, the driving force behind everything that he's going to write is that he wants you and me, those who have put their faith in Jesus and are committed to following him, he wants them and us to have a heart that is at rest. 
that we'd actually have a lived experience of an inner world that is at, at settled, that has inner peace and wholeness in the deepest part of who we are. This is what John wants for us internally and before the God of heaven and earth. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. John wants us to have hearts at rest before God and inside of us. And the reason why John wants this is because apparently the people that he's writing to, they're experiencing the opposite of that. Their hearts are not at rest. There's this inner chaos and confusion and uncertainty and unsettledness in their souls because of what's going on around them. This is the spiritual and the emotional state of the people that John is writing to. They need to experience a heart at rest. And this rest is, is deeper and stronger than whatever it is that you might do to relax. Nothing wrong with relaxing. You can go uh, for a walk with friends. You can go for a kayak on the water and enjoy nature. You can lay down and relax by watching a good movie or reading a good book or my personal favorite, have a nap. Yes. Before I came, God called me into ministry, I played professional hockey. And the one thing that I miss more than anything else is that you're paid to take a pregame nap. I've been trying to get Rod to let that be in my contract <laughs> in the elders, but they just don't seem to buy into that idea. But we do a lot of things to relax, but that's different than rest. The rest that John is referring to. There's relaxing, and then there's rest. And the rest that John is talking about is a heart-level rest, a rest that comes from knowing who you are in God's eyes and what is true about you because of what God has done for you in Jesus. It's a deep knowing of those realities and knowing that in your heart, and that leads to rest there. And even though we're removed, far removed historically from John's day and what he, the people he's writing to are experiencing, we are not far removed from this experientially, meaning that even though we are far from when John's writing, we actually experience the same things that John's people are experiencing. See, the problem of an unsettled heart didn't die 2,000 years ago. We still experience it today. We still experience unsettledness in our inner worlds and anxiety or a dis-ease within us. And that causes us to spend a lot of our lives searching and looking for something that will give our souls a sense of rest. See, John is taking an age-old issue as he starts in verse 19 and he's addressing it with two very human questions. The first is, am I living the right way? Am I living in the way and according to the truth of Jesus? And the second question is, how can I experience a heart at rest? See, we spend a lot of times of our lives consciously or subconsciously trying to answer these questions and looking for answers and for something to give us what we need. My favorite song by my favorite band, U2, they put words to this experience that many of us have. The words are, I have climbed highest mountains. I have run through the fields. I have run, I have crawled, I have scaled these city walls, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. See, for many of us, that's our experience. We still haven't found the peace and the rest that we're looking for. And the world and the culture around us 
They're not going to help us find it because if there's one thing about our culture is that it is actually one of the sources of unrest that we experience. Mark Sayers writes these words. He's a, an author and pastor. He says, if there's one word that captures the emotional mood of our day, it is anxiety. This atmosphere is thickened by the news, which presents us with a constant stream of worrying trends, unprecedented events, and cascading crises. We absorb this terrifying torrent of information through our digital devices, nodes connected to the internet in a kind of global electronic nervous system. Our digital network acts like a super spreading agent of anxiety within relational and so social networks. See, the reality is, is we live in a culture that is not at rest. Its messages hurry and do more, and its atmosphere is anxiety. See, the pandemic, I think the pandemic just heightened that and deepened that and thrust us further into that. The lives that we live online and our relationship with the technology and the things like our phones in our pockets, the access that we have today to events around the world that make it feel like those events are happening to us is unprecedented. The pressure that we feel to curate and maintain our own identities, the intense polarization in our culture, all of this works together to forge a culture that struggles to experience and find rest. It's the air we breathe, and it affects all of us. We're like fish in water. We are living in an age of anxiety. Some of us, it affects more than others, but on some level, we all experience this this tension, this dis-ease, this unsettledness. But John says it's deeper than what's happening around us because it's not that we live in a culture only that struggles to find rest. It's that we are at rest, not at rest internally. We are not at rest in our inner worlds, or as John puts it, our hearts are not at rest. Why does he say that? Because our hearts condemn us, John says. Our hearts condemn us. What does he mean by that? Look back at verse 19 with me. He says, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. So 14 times in this letter, in one way or another, John is going to say this phrase, this is how we know. It's his favorite phrase. It's one that he's going to come repeatedly back to over and over again. And he does so for a reason. Because the, the people he's writing to have shaky faith. Remember, they needed to be strengthened. And that word know in the original language means to have knowledge about something and to know it experientially. It's to know something in your head and to experience it in your heart. It's a combination of the two. And so remember, these people have doubts. They have questions. Their, their faith is rattled. They need something to strengthen it. Once again, and by using this word, by using this phrase over and over again, John is saying that you can know in your heads and experience in your hearts the rest of God. That you can know in your head and experience in your hearts the very rest of God. It's possible. And here's how you experience it. Now notice again, the place of rest is the heart. John is very clear that the rest he is talking about is to be located in one place, your heart. That's really important. And it's important to understand when the Bible talks about the heart, it's not talking about an organ that pumps your blood. What it is talking about is the inner person. It's talking about your soul, your spirit, your mind. 
your emotions. The heart is a term that encompasses all of who you are in your inner being. And the heart then, according to the Bible, is the center and the core of the human life. It is the command center, the thing out of which all that you say, think, and do flows from. And so everything you do outside of you begins inside of you. That's what the Bible is talking about when it talks about the heart, meaning that the heart is the real you. It's not the the you that you put on Instagram. It's not the you that you project to the people in this room. It's not the you that you project to your classmates or or your, your coworkers. Your heart is the real you. It is the essential core of your personhood. And so if you were to ask the question, why do we do what we do? The Bible answers it's because of what's in your heart. It's because of of what the condition of your heart. It's because of what's happening within you that you do and say the things that you do. So what we say and what we do and how we think and our responses to the situations around us, the Bible says it all happens because of what's going on in your heart. And so that unrest you feel, the anxiousness, the worry, all the stuff that you feel internally, you feel it because something is happening in your heart. And therefore, that's where John wants to take us to talk about the inner person. And he says that our hearts condemn us. By this, he means that there's going to be moments in your life where you're going to feel an inward conviction of what the Bible calls sin. And that there are going to be moments in your life that come from time to time and in different ways and in different intensities where your heart is actually going to speak guilty over you. John says that sin in in, in his letter is not doing what God says because our hearts desire something more than God. See, sin is not doing what God says is right, good, true, and best because we desire something less than that. John sums it up like this in chapter 3, verse 4. He says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. And so whenever you or I don't do what God says, we break his law. We sin. And we've all done it. Nobody in here is perfect except for Jesus. He's the only one who did everything that God said perfectly. So that means all of us are guilty before God. And because of that, our hearts condemn us from time to time. Saying, you can't measure up. You'll never measure up. Never can, never will. You're guilty and you always will be. These are the ways that our hearts speak guilt over top of us. And we can feel that. And we can live under the weight of that. And it can be crushing. Unless, unless... We unite our lives to Jesus by faith. Because when we do that, then everything changes. Look back at John chapter 3, verse 4. He says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. That's the bad news. Verse 5, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. So Jesus came to take away sin. He paid the penalty for it. And the power of the law, therefore, has lost its power over us. Jesus did what needed to be done. So now the verdict of the law has lost its power to condemn you and declare you guilty before God. Jesus sets you free, and now you live under grace. A man named Paul said it like this, therefore, there is now no 
condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So what Jesus has done and your faith in that is the way for anyone to have God declare not guilty over them and become holy and blameless in his sight. See, before Jesus, we lived under condemnation, but after our faith in Jesus, we live under grace. And there's no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus. That is what is true. And at the very same time, John says, and yet you and I are going to go through moments as we go through life, as we follow Jesus, where our not yet fully transformed hearts are going to declare guilty over us. And what he's doing is, is actually, I think, helpful is that he's normalizing this. If this is your experience, then you're not alone. This is an expectation that John says that, that all of us will experience this as we follow Jesus. It's something that you and I can expect to experience. It might come from a minor slip-up or a major failure or something in between, but it will happen from time to time, John says. And when that happens, our hearts get unsettled. And we will experience a heart that is not at rest. See, for me, November was a tough month. My heart was not at rest the entire month. I was anxious. Everything made me anxious. I was unsettled. And it was like this journey that God took me on to, to actually, like, I think, prepare me for this message, to be honest with you. Is that God was working these things out with me before I ever actually opened up this, this part of, the, of 1 John and began to study it and teach it. Is that my heart was on at rest. I was anxious about my family. I was anxious about work. I was anxious about all these things. In November, my heart was not at rest. And some of you know that feeling too well. Some of you know that feeling all too well. Can I just say that it's normal to have a heart that's not at rest from time to time? It's part of what it means to be human and to follow Jesus. And so John normalizes it, but I also think it's helpful that we remember what is actually true in the middle of all that, what is true for you and for me and for anyone who follows Jesus. Best book I read this year, Simon Ponzabi's The Pursuit of the Holy. Listen to these words, he says. Sin is hemmed in. Christ crucified has annulled its penalty and broken its power. Romans 5.1 tells us we have justification. Romans 8.1 tells us we have no condemnation. No matter what sins I may have done or what sin I still may do, the determining reality in my life is what Christ has done. Dying for me at Calvary and what Christ will do, standing for me on Judgment Day. Whatever the ongoing operation of sin in the believer's life, it is temporal and without eternal consequence. It may accuse, but it cannot condemn it has no power to undo what God has done. Sin cannot rob me of my rights. It cannot reverse God's decree and declaration over my life. It is an irritant whose days are numbered. Whatever its presence, its power in my life is broken, its penalty covered. It seeks to undermine God's work in me and God's will for me, but it cannot cancel out my new true identity as one united with Christ or my security of eternity with Christ. That is good news. And that is your story if you belong to Jesus. And my exhortation to you is hold on to that. Remember that, return to that reality over and over again. And remember that God is someone that you can turn to when your heart declares you guilty. 
He is. John has already taught us in this letter. If you go back, hard to remember what happened in September and October, but if you go back to September and October, John has already taught in chapter 1 that when we fall short of what God wants, we have a place we can run to because God is faithful and just to forgive. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, John says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. See, we tend to think that confession is, 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 is a scary thing or we recoil from it, but it's actually a beautiful thing because God is faithful and just that he will forgive you and make you clean on the inside because of, of, of when you bring your sin and your struggles to him. This is what he does. He's faithful to forgive and he is committed to you in spite of your sin and mistakes. That's how good he is. So there is great hope in the act of confession. There's great hope in the God that we worship John tells us that he's greater and that he knows everything. And when he says God is greater, he's talking about God's size and stature, like God is infinite, he's eternal, he's transcendent, he's powerful and good, and he holds the universe in the palm of his hands and controls it and maintains it. But he's also greater because this God has spoken loudly to us a a, a verdict of not guilty in and through Jesus. That sin has been paid for, death has been defeated, and the power of the law to condemn you has been broken. What God has done in Jesus and spoken to the world and to you through Jesus is greater than anything that your heart can say to you. That's what John is saying. He's saying, think about this God. Think about who he is. Think about what he's done. Think about what he's spoken over you in Jesus, and let that bring rest to your inner world when it declares you guilty. And remember that this God, he knows everything about you. And he loves you completely. See, God knows all about you. He knows your heart and what's in it. He knows what you're going to do, what you have done, and what you will do. He knows you better than you know yourself. And for some of us, that's a really scary thought. But I actually think it's incredibly encouraging that God knows everything about me, even the worst things that I've thought and done And he is so committed to me that he sent his one and only son to die for me before I ever believed in him. See, God holds nothing back from us. He knows everything about you and he still is committed to you and he will never stop being committed to you. That's the good news. God is greater and God knows everything about you. So is your heart not at rest? Is your, is your heart declaring a guilty verdict over you? John says, think about who God is and allow him that to settle your heart. But there's two groups that John talks about in this. Two groups. The second group he talks about in verse 21. Listen to what he says there. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. And so if the first group has hearts that condemn, this second group are those who have confidence before God, meaning they're people whose hearts are at rest, that they feel right with God and they are walking in a confident faith. And what are they supposed to do? Well, John says, pray boldly and live faithfully. Pray boldly and live faithfully. If you're experiencing a heart at rest right now, if you feel confident in your faith, 
and your heart is right before God, John says, pray. That's one of the side effects of a heart at rest is you pray with boldness. The image is of a child coming to a parent and asking that parent of anything and everything they want. So I have two sons. They're really good at this. They hold nothing back. They, they have no problem coming to my wife and I and asking for something. It could be a new game, a new toy. It could be more food, which is always the case. They just have this boldness. They, they just know what they want. They don't care how much they've already asked or how much they already have. They're going to continue to ask, no matter how outrageous the ask is. I mean, they've asked us for some outrageous things, like they've asked for a gorilla. <laughs> a lightsaber which I wish I could give them. That'd be really cool. But they, they just have this, 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 this freedom, this boldness to ask of Catherine and I anything that they want. This is the kind of prayer that John says that we can have with God when our hearts are at rest, confident, bold prayers that move heaven and earth. And I love what Jesus' brother James wrote about this. In James chapter 5, verse 16, he says these words. The prayer of a righteous person, so a person right with God, is powerful and effective. Man, I want to pray with power and I want my prayers to be effective. Prayer becomes powerful when we are right with God, when our hearts are at rest, and when we pray according to God's will and God's desires. And that's what we want, don't we? We want to move heaven and earth with our prayers, don't we? We want to have our, our prayers answered. and We want to see God move. We want that. We long for that. I do. So then why don't we experience this? Why? Why is there a gap between what we're seeing here and what actually happens in our experience? Well, according to John, there may be a couple of reasons for that. One, you might, there might be something out of line in your heart. It might be a heart issue. Two, you may not be asking for something that lines up with God's will. And three, you may not be doing what God says. Did you notice that there's a connection between our obedience and answered prayer in this verse? John says that we receive what we ask for. Why? Because we do what God says. So there's this link between our obedience and answered prayer. In other words, our obedience invites God's activity. When we obey, God moves. And John has a specific kind of obedience in mind. In verse 23, he says, believe in Jesus and love others. Believe in Jesus, love others. This one teaching of God kind of sums up all the other teachings that we must live out if we want to experience a heart at rest and if we want to see answered prayer. We spoke about this last week is that we're to love one another with Jesus-type love, with a costly, other-oriented, unselfish love that's generous and moves toward the peop people in our lives to meet their needs. That's the kind of love that we're to have for one another. And so if we do this, if we live this out, we pray in line with God's heart for the world and for the things around us, John says our prayers are actually going to be answered and God will unleash his activity in us and through us and around us. This is the pathway to rest in unanswered prayer. Believe in someone greater and love others as Jesus has loved you. Two acts, one vertical, one horizontal, both working together so we can experience a heart at rest and answered prayer. 
Do this, John says, and rest will come. Do this, John says, and God will start to move and answer your prayers. Sounds easy, but there's something more that needs to happen in us. Something more, something deeper has to happen in us if we truly want to experience this for ourselves. And John brings us there in verse 24 saying this, the one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. So ultimately to have a heart at rest and to be con- have a confident life of prayer, a certain kind of life has to live in you. And it's a life that we can only experience through the spirit of Jesus who comes and lives in us when we put our trust in Jesus. Which means that true rest and true pr- power to pray comes by the spirit that God gives us when we put our faith in Jesus. And that sounds good, but the problem is that our experience of the spirit is not something that we are very familiar with in our culture. See, our culture struggles to experience God. And oftentimes the church gets so wrapped up in the head that it fails to experience the truth that it believes. And so in the church, we can tend to read about the Spirit and know about it and know what the Bible says about it, but we don't actually have tangible experiences of the Spirit of God. And so the experience of the Spirit is not very familiar for us, but verse 22 tells us that there is a way to experience God and a way for us to see God move. And the way that this happens, John says, is... Our experience of God is tied to our pursuit of him in prayer. See, we see this over and over again in the Bible. In Exodus 19, God says to Moses, tell the people to prepare themselves for my coming, to consecrate yourself, to dedicate yourself to me by not doing a few things for a certain time, and then I'm going to come, and I'm going to come in power. Moses tells the people of Israel, they do it, and God comes in fire. And the people of Israel see the presence and the person and the glory of God with their own eyes. Preparation and consecration come before the presence of God. In Joshua 3, God tells Israel, hey, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. I'm going to do amazing things. And Israel does that. And the next day, God parts the Jordan River and the people of God walk across the Jordan River on dry ground. 2 Chronicles 5, a king named Solomon sets the new temple of God apart as holy. He consecrates it with worship and prayer and sacrifice. And God's glory fills the temple in such a powerful way that the priests can't even do their jobs. Because the glory and the presence of God was among them. Consecration comes before the glory of God comes. Fast forward to Acts 2. Jesus tells his followers, I'm going back to heaven. I want you to wait in Jerusalem. I'm going to send the promised Holy Spirit. What do the disciples do? They go into an upper room and they pray. They're hungering after God in prayer. They're thirsting after God in prayer. And all of a sudden, the power of God through the Holy Spirit comes like fire and it fills them and they are given the power they need to go and continue Jesus' mission in the world. In Acts 4, just a little bit later, their response to opposition is to gather in a room and to pray boldly for God's power and boldly for God's courage to go and to continue what they had begun in Jesus' name and power. And as they pray, prayed, the place where they were was shaken to its foundations, and they were filled with the Spirit of God. Bold prayer shakes foundations and invites the Holy Spirit. 
See, this is how it plays out in the Bible, but it also plays out this way in history too. John Wesley, famous leader of one of the Great Awakenings, it tells a story about one night he was with a few of his friends and they were praying through the night. And about 3 a.m., he writes in his journal that as they were praying, as they were dedicating their lives to God, as they surrendered to him, the Spirit of God came and they just began to worship because the presence of God was so real in that moment and it launched a movement called the Great Awakening that was worldwide. There's a thing called the Hebrides Revival in little islands in Britain. And it started because two women would sit in their like sitting area and just cry out for God to move. They prayed and they prayed and they dedicated themselves to God. They said, come and cleanse us, God. Come and move in power. And there are stories you can read about it where the Holy Spirit came and it drew like a circle around the islands And there were stories of people coming because God was moving so powerfully that they would step into the sphere of the spirit and just be dropped to their knees and confess sin and give their lives to God. I've had this happen in my own life as I've sought God and taken him on his promise to seek him. I say, God, I want you to have my life. I want you to have all of me. I don't want to hold anything back. Cleanse me of all that is not of you. Rid me of all of that. And in those moments, a couple times in my life, God has come and I've been face to face with the living God and it completely undid me. Changed me forever. It happened before. It can happen again. It happened before. It can happen again. Do you believe that? Do you want that? God works in this way. The gateway to God and a heart at rest and answered prayer and the movement of God is throughout history that consecration comes before visitation. There's this connection between God coming and his, what's called consecration is his people setting themselves apart as holy, dedicating your life to God and aiming to live a life of holiness. Throughout history, this has been the key to God at visiting and power. Simon Ponzibi, I'll quote him again, holiness welcomes the Holy One. Holiness welcomes the Holy One. And so consecration makes a way for the manifest presence of God to come, which is different than God's omnipresence, which is this idea that God is everywhere at all times. But the manifest presence of God is when he shows up in a tangible way. And we want to be a church and we want to be a people that long for that and hunger for that and position ourselves to pursue that, to expect God to come and expect God to move. And if that is to happen, then we have to consecrate ourselves and dedicate ourselves to God and pursue him in prayer. And so today, what if we ask God to come? What if he, we asked him to come and he actually does and moves in this room? See, if you want to experience peace and rest and joy and confidence, then consecrate yourself. Set yourself apart to God and invite God to come in the power of his spirit to move in you. So I'm going to invite the prayer teams up. I'm going to invite the prayer teams up, and here's how this is going to look. I'm going to give you a few steps, and then we're going to enter into prayer. The first step is based on the promise that you can have a heart at rest when you continue to return to God. And so the first step in this time is consecration. Is there any unconfessed sin in your life? Is something or someone other than God taking up the place that God is meant to live in your life? Confess that. Bring that to God. Come humbly to the throne of grace and ask him to cleanse you. The second step is to pray. Is your heart not at rest? Is your faith shaky? Do you have questions? 
What do you want God to do in your life? Come and pray and ask God to fill you with his spirit, to consecrate you on the inside and help you experience a rest unlike anything else you can find in this world. And lastly, are you here and are you walking in confident faith before God? Then pray boldly. Seek God right here, right now, that he would unleash his spirit in the lives of people who need to encounter and experience the spirit. Pray. Let's open our lives together to the presence and the power of God because that's the way for our hearts to find rest, to enjoy a confident faith, and to see God move in power. Join me as we pray. response to our